My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Then he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has proclaimed me to proclaim release for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Then Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Jerusalem, or in Israel, During Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was also a severe famine throughout the land, and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath and the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this, and they got up, And they drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and just went on his way. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this morning, this morning we are talking about the the most disastrous family reunion of all time. Um, And you hear that, you might think to yourself, you know, no, we're not. Not unless we're talking about my family reunion in the year of, in the summer of 1989 or something. But I, I promise you that this story is crazier. Um, I don't mean to downplay any difficult family gatherings that you have been to, but the family reunion described in Luke chapter 4 was definitely more emotionally insane and explosive than the time your uncle brought up the election during Thanksgiving dinner of 08 or cousin Sarah dropped the news that she was pregnant during the middle of making Christmas cookies. Uh, this morning, We're considering the story of the time when Jesus, after kicking off his earthly ministry, decided to preach a sermon in his own hometown, the town that raised him, good old Nazareth. And uh, it started out okay. There's a warm welcome, some excitement about the homegrown prophet. But it ends with an angry mob attempting to literally hurl Jesus right off of a cliff. This is the most disastrous family reunion ever. And, And what happened? 
Like, how do we get from point A to point B, from everybody speaking well of Jesus in verse 22 to attempted murder in verse 29? What went so wrong? That's what is up to us to figure out over the course of the next several minutes. Somewhere in that question, somewhere in the crowd's extreme reaction, is a word for us today, a challenge, I think, for us today, and a reminder for the church at large. Before we jump into the story, I've got a little mental exercise that I want you to try out to try to help us get a handle on what I think might be one of the main themes of this story. I want you to think of someone or something that you, that you poured your whole self into, something that you committed to building up or nurturing. It could be a person, son, daughter, or even like a, a coworker or someone that you dedicated yourself to, to providing for them, teaching for them, mentoring them. Um, or maybe you are thinking of an organization or a project or a mission of some kind, an initiative that you committed your, your time and your passion and your resources to because you believed in it and because you wanted to see it succeed. Once you've got something like that in your head, I want you to consider this. To what extent, if any, did you end up feeling a sense of, of ownership, sort of? over this person or this thing. Now, I don't mean like in a weird or creepy way, necessarily, like your mentee like was your slave or that you were like some sort of absolute dictator or something. I just mean to what extent did you perhaps understandably feel that given the amount that you poured in, the amount of energy, their time that you committed, you felt somewhat entitled to, to kind of benefit or influence or prominent role in the life of this person or in the operations of this organization or, or, or mission. Again, this is an understandable feeling to have, a natural feeling to have, to feel that uh, your commitment might result in some kind of consideration or advantage. All right, I just want you to have this concept and this situation in the back of your head as we go through this story. Our story begins right after Jesus has been tempted by Satan in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, in the Gospel accounts, the temptation narrative always directly precedes Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. It seems like it kind of uh, focuses his mission or, or gets him in the right state of mind to begin his work. And in verse 14, we hear that the launch of Jesus' mission was a huge success. Uh, the, the text tells us that Jesus returns to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. He starts teaching all the local synagogues, and the report of him, the news of him, has begun to spread throughout all of the surrounding countrysides. Jesus is starting to go, to go viral, to put in today's terms. And there wasn't any internet, there was no social media, there weren't even newspapers at this time, right? So what this means is that people were just talking about Jesus to everybody at the local watering hole, uh, in the fields, at, at big family dinners. People were telling stories of a man named Jesus, whose, whose teachings held people spellbound, um, who's ex who expounded on the Holy Scriptures with such beauty and passion and insight, and who it was rumored could give blind men their sight back, and he could heal the lepers of their diseases. He was glorified. He was praised by everybody, verse 15 tells us. In verse 16, we get a change of scenery. And so Jesus came to Nazareth, where he was brought up. Now, you all know at this point that I, I'm really into the Hebrew language, the language that the Old Testament was written in. I'm working on Greek, um, which was the language the New Testament was written in. I'm not nearly as good at it at this point. And so when I first tried to translate this verse 16, I was really confused because the verb that is translated as brought up, as in Nazareth, where he was brought up, it's the verb, it's the verb trepho, which means to eat. And so I kept, at first I kept getting something like, and he came to Nazareth, where he used to eat a lot. And I mean, that 
was confusing. It didn't really fit the context well. Uh, so I, I consulted some books written by people that are smarter than I am, and I learned that in the Greek language, in order to communicate this sense of bringing someone up, of rearing or of raising a child or an animal or something, um, the, the Greek language uses a passive form of the verb to eat. Uh, lightning quick grammar review. Active verbs is when the subject performs the action, like I kicked the ball. Passive verb is when the subject receives the action, I was kicked like by my little brother or something. And so in the Greek language of Jesus' day, instead of saying something like, I was brought up by my parents in central Florida, you would use a passive form of the verb to eat to mean, to mean essentially the same thing. I was fed lots of food by my parents in central Florida. And I do think that my mom is probably going to chuckle or smile when she hears that line on the YouTube video or the podcast because she raised three boys, football players and basketball players, and I'm sure that raising us a lot of times felt simply like feeding us a lot of food over and over and over again. Um, this actually makes sense when you think about it, because remember, Jerusalem was an ancient society, and it was a subsistence economy, meaning that your entire goal was just to subsist, to survive, to gather enough of the essentials, food, water, shelter, that you needed. You didn't save for retirement. You didn't have an entertainment budget or anything crazy like that. Every week, waking moment was spent procuring the necessary resources for that day. And so the main concern when you were going to have a child wasn't like, Will I be able to help my kid fulfill his dreams? Or will my child resent me for the famous punt family knows that he has a 50% chance of receiving? It was just, do we have the extra bread? And so classic where are you from conversations tended to sound a little bit different in Jesus' day. Well, I, I was fed lots of food in Raleigh um, until I was about 10 years old. Then we moved to Pitt County, and then I started being fed lots of root food here in Grifton. Oh, interesting. I was fed lots of food up north, actually, and so on and so forth. Now, now, I try to only take you all down weird grammar rabbit holes when I think that it's important. Um, and I think that it is here. Biblical narrative is, is famously sparse on details. And so when we do get a detail, Nazareth, which, by the way, dear reader, that was where Jesus was brought up, the place that fed him over and over and over again. When we do get that kind of detail, it's important. In verse 16, Jesus returns home to the place, to the people that raised him, that sacrificed for him. First century Jerusalem was a it takes a village kind of culture. So when we hear that Jesus is going back to Nazareth, it means that he's going back to the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the neighbors that took bread and water off of their own tables in order to make sure that Jesus even made it to the age where he could wander off in the desert and be tempted by Satan. These people poured themselves and their resources into this upcoming young prophet that now has the whole region of us. So Jesus comes to Nazareth, the place where he was brought up, and immediately he goes into the synagogue, because that, that was just what he did. The Jewish, the Nazareth synagogue, may be excited to have this increasingly popular traveling rabbi stop by their own little church, apparently decided to give him the honor of taking the lead, of being the person that read the sacred scroll and expounded upon it that day. And man, G Jesus delivered, uh, exceeded all expectations. He probably the most exciting and earth-shattering sermon in the history of the world. He turns to Isaiah 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah, almost definitely known throughout Jerusalem as a wonderful messianic prophecy of coming hope. But then the real shock comes with Jesus' short little exposition afterwards. 
If you look down at verse 20, the text builds tension with a series of small details that sort of slow down time. It says, Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Quick aside, in synagogue practice, when you were about to teach, you would actually sit down to teach. All eyes were fastened on him. And then Jesus gives the most powerful seven-word sermon in the history of the world. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That afternoon in Nazareth, the place that fed him lots of food over and over again, the place that raised him, Jesus publicly proclaimed his messianic identity for the first time. The first time, Jesus told the people, I'm the Messiah. You know, the one that you've been waiting for, the new Adam, King David's true heir, the prophet in the tradition of Elijah and Elisha, who would continue the redemptive work of God in the world. That's me. The time has come, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And the people loved it. How could they not? They've been waiting for this moment their entire lives. Next verse says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's boy? Joseph's kid, one of our very own, has ended up as the long-awaited Messiah. That's crazy. I coached his soccer team once. I remember bringing a lasagna over to, to Mary and Joseph when they first got here. This is great. Jesus is going to put Nazareth on the map. We got it made now. What a crazy world. It had to have been an exciting moment to realize that one of the own town's little kids was actually the long-awaited Savior. And yet only six verses later, the same crowd is filled with murderous rage and wants to see Jesus' body shattered at the base of a cliff. So how does that happen? Well, everything might have been okay if Jesus would have just preached a shorter sermon, um, if he would have just stopped with the dramatic I am the Messiah bit, but he doesn't. Instead, he launches into a weird second half that really seems to break up all the momentum. Jesus starts it by saying, Surely you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell to me, Do here in your hometown what you have heard that I did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continues, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. At this point, I imagine the crowd in the synagogue similarly confused as we tend to be when we read these verses. What, what is Jesus talking about here? Not accepted in his hometown. Where does he get that? We, they invited him to the synagogue. They loved the first half of the sermon. What does he mean? Well, to more fully explain, Jesus refers them back to two Old Testament stories. The first is from 1 Kings. It's about a time when, during the midst of a horrible famine, God's prophet Elijah goes to a widow in the town of Zarephath and gives her a jar of meal and oil that never runs dry, just keeps refilling over and over and over again so that they make it through the entire famine. And the second story that Jesus, that Jesus mentions is when Elijah's successor, Elisha, goes to the Syrian governor, Naaman, and cures him of his leprosy. And the common thread between these two stories is the fact that both the widow and Naaman, the Syrian governor, were not Israelites. They were Gentiles. They were outsiders. They were not a part of the people of God. And both of these stories, rather than providing assistance to Israelites... God's prophets leave Israel in order to bring the provisions and the grace of God to outsiders. In the second half of this sermon, Jesus is trying to tell the people of Nazareth, his own hometown, hey, my mission, my work as the Messiah, it's like that. It's like the times that God's prophets left Israel in order to serve other nations. Basically, what Jesus is saying is like, yeah, y'all, the town that raised me, that gave me the bread off of your own table— that poured your time and your resources into me, I'm, I'm not here for you. I'm here for the Gentiles, the people who are not a part of you, 
who a lot of time you hate and who hate you. People like the Samaritans, the the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the outcasts, the Roman soldiers, your own captors. I'm here for those people. I've come to serve those people. And the Nazarites are furious and they want to throw them off the cliff. And I wonder if maybe here, now, we're finally at a point where we could maybe even sympathize with the people of Nazareth to a certain extent. What does it mean to say Jesus wasn't here for them? Were they not included in the good news of the gospel? Is Jesus being just a bit of a jerk here, forgetting where he came from, so to speak, betraying his own flesh and blood? I I don't think so. I don't think that's what we need to take away from this story. Jesus' message is not that God does not love Israel and does not love the people of Nazareth. Yes, to illustrate his point, he he points to stories in the Old Testament where God reaches outwards to the Gentiles, but the vast majority of the Old Testament describes God's unflagging love for his people, for the people of Israel, and the lengths to which he is willing to go in order to draw them to himself. God loves his people. And Jesus also loves Jerusalem. He loves the Jewish people. He loves his own town in Nazareth. Later in the Gospel of Luke, he will weep over Jerusalem, and he will say that he wishes he could gather her under her arms like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And then in, in the epistles, Paul, Jesus' most prominent mouthpiece, will say that God is eventually going to draw all of Israel to himself. And Paul waits breathlessly for that moment with, with hopeful anticipation. Jesus is not rejecting the people of Nazareth. But I do think with this sermon, Jesus is bluntly reminding the people of Nazareth of a crucial biblical truth. It's this, the God of the Bible tends to start his work small with a smaller group of people, and then he works outwards towards everybody. He came to Abraham in Genesis to build up the nation of God, but even then he told Abram that the ultimate goal was to bless all nations of the world. Jesus called his disciples from the Jewish people. All 12 of the disciples were from the tribes of Israel. But he was also constantly reaching out to all manner of outcasts and to outsiders. The Bible concludes with the vision of Revelation and a a vision of a celestial city where all nations of the world have finally come together to worship God as one. God starts small and works outwards towards everybody. And that sounds great, but here's the part that we don't always like, and I think it's the part that got Jesus in trouble that afternoon in Nazareth. Once you have been incorporated in, once you have been taken into the fold, once you have received the grace of God, the whole thing is actually no longer about you. You are no longer the focus because the focus is always on the outsider, on moving outwards. Rather than sticking around Nazareth and becoming their patron saint, Jesus wants to go out and speak to the Samaritan woman at the well, the outsider that has not heard the good news, and he wants to give her living water. Jesus tells a story where he describes the kingdom of God as a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep in the barn in order to go find the one sheep that is wandering through the wilderness. Nazareth had an expectation that as Jesus' hometown is the place that raised them, he was going to be their hero, fight for them, represent their interests, put them first, front and center. It's an understandable expectation from a human perspective. They gave him the bread off of their own table. But it's simply not how the God of the Bible works. And as Christians who believe in this God, we have to deal with that reality. Jesus had to shut this thinking down that day in Nazareth because he had come for those who were not yet in the fold. It was a hard word for Nazareth, but it's a word they needed to hear nonetheless. So let's land it right here. How how does this apply to us? 
Well, as often is the case in the stories that we read in the Bible, it depends on what character or group of people that we identify with in the story. On the one hand, I mentioned before, this right here, we got, we got right here a gathering of Gentiles, not descendants of Abraham. And so in that respect, this is another story of how Jesus has welcomed us into Israel's story. And we should be thankful that God came for everybody, and that Jesus continued to expand the mission and the work of God to all nations of the world. But in a lot of ways, nowadays, living you know, in what's known as the Bible Belt, in the modern church, Pitt County, where the majority of people at least will tell you that they are Christians, nowadays, I, I really think that we are closer to the insiders. We are those already in the fold. So we're Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And if we identify with Nazareth, then I think that we have to wrestle with an important but potentially difficult truth, as we don't ever get to claim ownership or control over the God who is constantly reaching outwards. That's a bit abstract. It might not be immediately clear what I mean. Let's build towards that idea with a couple of more concrete examples. Go back to that person or that organization that I asked you to think about at the beginning of the sermon, the one that you poured your whole self into, that you sacrificed things for, that you gave things up for. And then here's the hard truth about that. If your ultimate goal, if your true purpose was to help build up the kingdom of God, then part of that is, a, is the need to relinquish that impulse to claim ownership and control. I had a friend at seminary who I'm going to call Greg, one of the most interesting people I have ever met in my entire life. He felt deeply, deeply called to be a monastic missionary, which I did not really even know what that was until I met Greg. He felt called to join a monastery, to live as a monk, which meant, among other things, never marrying, spending hours per day in prayer and worship, and the rest of his time serving the, the, the bodily needs of the local community outside of the monastery in the name of Jesus. And through some conversations with him, I happen to know that his family, despite being Christians themselves, often really struggled to support this calling that he felt. And I bet, I bet you can understand why, right? You might, in theory, dedicate your child to God and pray that God would use his child, your child for his purposes. But then when your kid announces that he's going to move to Africa to pray through the Psalms for three hours a day and to spend every other waking moment feeding meals to destitute locals, how would, how would that feel? I, I mean, I think in their better moments, Greg's parents felt very proud, but they also had to really grieve the loss of their own expectations for, for Greg's life and the fact that they were going to be so far from the center of it, despite how often they had fed him and brought him up. Because God, through Greg, was moving outwards to those not already in the fold. That's an extreme example, but I, get, I think it gets at what is a universal experience. In theory, we want our efforts and our sacrifices to be used by God, but when God takes us up on it and then begins to move towards people or situations that aren't familiar to us or that we had not anticipated, he continually insists the focus be on the outsider rather than on the ones that work so hard and sacrifice so much. There's a real impulse to pull back and maybe get even frustrated. I mean, I think... Church is like a really good example of this, right? Uh, I'm around, and it, it works on both sides of the equation here. I am in circles with pastors a lot now, um, and I can tell you that one of the very common frustrations that pastors have is generous, generous givers for whom their gifts are, are greatly appreciated and, and, um, and treasured, but then 
operate within the church as if their contributions entitled them to some influence and, and more say. Um, and, and their contributions kind of operate in a transactional manner, entitling them to more of the church's focus and attention. And the flip side of this, obviously, is, is pastors who think that, you know, this is my job. I'm the one that is thinking about and praying about this church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So we're going to do what, we, what I say we're going to do because I put so much time in. And to be perfectly honest, I, I haven't felt that dynamic a whole lot here at, Gr- at Grifton. I'm grateful to be a part of a church that in my experience gives generously without strings attached. But I think regardless, this might be a good reflection to end on and to ask ourselves, what would the church, both lowercase c and capital C, the church universal, what would the church look like if we really embraced this tendency of God to be constantly moving outward? A church where as soon as you were in, and as soon as you were in the fold, then the mission and the work of the church, you weren't forgotten. You were, you were encouraged and, and, and nurtured, but you're no longer the focus. The church no longer existed for you. Instead, you joined the church's effort to move outward and to reach outward along with God. And we really got to wrestle with this. And I've been wrestling with it myself. And... We really got to get on board, ultimately, because, because we don't have a choice. Um, you know why? Because, because God is going to do what he wants to do anyway, with or without our approval. Our story ends with Nazareth driving Jesus to the edge of a cliff, ready to throw him off, ready to cast the homegrown prophet down to the rocks below, because he had the gall to proclaim that his mission was not directly about them. But then in verse 30, mysteriously and strangely, Jesus just simply passes through their midst and goes on his way. He simply walks through the crowd to begin his ministry outward one way or the other. No one can claim any ownership over the God who is constantly moving outwards. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.